You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, let's pray before we get started. Lord, I praise you that you use broken people to do your work. And I pray that, Lord, I would be like the Apostle Paul, that at the end of his life, he says, it was not me, but it was Christ in me and through me. I pray that that would be true this morning, that your word would speak through me and to us and to me as well. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes that long to see you and to know you and that take hold of you by faith. I pray that you would help us this morning to be cut to the heart by your word that your spirit would ready us and give us all that we need to serve you this week and next week and for all of our lives to your glory. Amen. How we act is often informed by who we think we are. Sorry about that. Paul David Tripp tells an amusing story of his children. Uh, One, he has a child at the age, he was age three, his name was Darnay, and he was playing in the the background. Sorry, this is not working. He's three years old, playing in the backyard, completely oblivious to everything going around around him. Notably, his older brother, Ethan. Now, Ethan was practicing baseball. But instead of a bat, he had a rake. And instead of a ball, he had a rock. And you can start to see where this story is going immediately. It wasn't long before the rake took hold of the rock, and the rock took hold of Darnay's face. And... Of course, chaos ensued after the older brother, Ethan, runs to his father and starts pleading, I didn't do it. I didn't mean to do it. And their younger sister starts running around making ambulance noise just to add to the chaos. But then there's Darnay laying on the ground with blood pouring out of his head, and he's completely calm and at peace. And his dad comes over to him, and he hears his son saying a sentence to himself over and over. And his son is saying, I'm just so glad my daddy is a doctor. (laughs) Well, Dr. Tripp was not a medical doctor. (laughs) But from Darnay's point of view, he had the name, he had the title, and he also kept appointments. But, of course, that was not true. You see, this is a mistake of mistaken identity. Both Darnay mistaking his father's identity and Darnay mistaking his own as well. That he thought he was the son of a medical doctor when in fact he was the son of a pastor. You see, in the Christian life, we live under many of these same false assumptions. That we have false assumptions about our God, about our Father, and false assumptions about ourselves. We despair because we do not know 
the love of God. Or we despair because we do not believe that we are free from sin. Or maybe we're like Darnay and we are completely comfortable and at peace because we think we don't have to be pure. We think we are at peace because we are not at war with sin when in fact we are. And our passage this morning directs us to reorient our lives and to remember that if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. And you are called to be different from the world. And you are called to be pure as well. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. And I'll read for you. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So this morning we have four points drawn from this text. There's one command and then three statements. So first the command is, behold the Father's love. And then we have three statements for the Christian. This world is not your home. This world is not your hope. And all Christians purify themselves. And don't worry, if you didn't get those, I'll repeat them later. So first we have, behold the Father's love. As you're reading these verses, there's really only one command. And you can see it right there in verse 1. It's that very first word. What does it say? See. That's right. See, that is the only command in this passage But it's such an important command for us this morning that we see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. In fact, if I were to translate even that first word to us in our North Carolinian language, it'd be, y'all, look at this. Or, y'all, pay attention. Or, y'all, behold. I think behold is an appropriate word because it's not merely that we observe God's love or that we notice its existence, but that we would know it and delight in it, that we would know it and be awed by it. God's love is something that you must know and understand and rejoice in. But how can we see love? Well, the passage directs us that we see God's love by what his love has done. That by his love, we would be called children of God, and such we are. And here we see the Father's love, that first he he calls us his children. And we know this love that is associated with that. We know when you call someone son or my child, we know the affection that that implies. We know the feelings of love and sacrifice of belonging, protection, concern. It's like when the Apostle Paul calls Timothy my child in the faith. 
we know that statement would not have been lost on Timothy. He would look back and be able to remember all the time that Paul has invested in him, all the patience and instruction and correction that Paul had given to him, and what faith that was in Paul that was now growing up in Timothy as well. And even the affirmation and joy that comes with sending him out. In the same way, by calling us his children, the Lord declares his love for us. But it's so much more than a declaration because the text isn't just that we are called children of God, but it's and such we are. The Lord calls us his children because we are his children, because his love has made us his children. You see, his love is an adopting love. His love is so great that he takes sinners and he makes them sons. He takes men and women who have rejected him and his commands and he brings them into his family. See, at the cross of Christ, the sins of the world were laid on him and Christian. The Lord Jesus died for your sins that they would be paid for and your guilt and shame removed. And we rejoice that Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave that we are adopted into his family by grace. And so we behold the Father's love in the gospel. In the gospel of free and eternal and unchangeable and powerful love that the Father has for his own. As John would go on to say in chapter 4, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The late J.I. Packer described the gospel succinctly as adoption through propitiation, where God brings us into his family, and propitiation where Jesus takes on the wrath for sin that we deserved. And we see God's love heralded throughout Scripture. That it was, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Or as we've been looking in Ephesians, if you remember memorizing in chapter 1, verse 5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. This gospel shapes the present reality of the church. That's what Christ has done, tells us who we are. Because we are children of God. We are children of God through faith. That's who we are right now. Right now we are His children. Right now we are counted righteous, though sinners. Right now we pray to God saying, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is Your name. Right now we can declare if God is for us, who is against us. Right now, Christian, you can take heart in every trial and every temptation because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And right now we can rejoice that this Lord has given us His Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. And right now we know that because we are children, we know all of His blessings, all of His goodness, all of His love. And they are not earned by us, but as this text says, they are given as a gift. They are 
bestowed on us. God's love is bestowed on us that we are called children of God, and such we are. And so we can sing the songs like, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Behold the Father's love that He would adopt you, dear Christian. This is a call for you to see and know and rejoice in the love your heavenly Father has demonstrated once and for all on the cross of Christ. See, our love may ebb and flow. It waxes and wanes like the moon, disappearing one night and reappearing the next. Our love increases and decreases But we are children of God, whose love is fixed, and whose love is too deep for us to even begin to reach the depths. His love is rooted in the gospel that God would send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, to secure for all Christians adoption through His blood. So we can do our soul good by beholding that love. By giving attention to know the Father's adopting love. But know this. The Father's love is only received through faith in Christ. Even now as you hear these words of Scripture, exulting in the Father's love, know that if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, the Lord does not count you as sons, but He counts you as what you are. And if you are not a child of God, as John 3.8 makes clear, You are a child of the devil. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Father's love is the only escape from this destruction through faith in the Son. But until that final judgment comes, while we live here on earth, we wait. And the Christian should live uncomfortably in the world. Because... This world is not your home. That's our next point. This world is not your home. As verse 1 continues, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. This sentence starts with the phrase, For this reason. When we see that, we should be thinking, Well, for what reason? Well, we look back and see that it is, John has just declared us, children of God, and it is for that reason that the world does not know us because they did not know God Himself when He came and lived among them. The world does not know us because children of God are different. They are as unrecognizable to the world as God Himself when He came to earth. They are identified with God, And you can start to see that something greater than just a human adoption has happened here. Something greater than what we know. You see, when there's a human adoption, you can see there's still some difference between the parents and the child. There still is maybe a different hair color, different skin tone. Maybe even a different way of thinking or talking. But yet, for the Christian, being a child of God means likeness to God. And because of this likeness, the children of God are distinct from the world. 
And this is a point throughout 1 John. This entire book keeps repeating this, that Christians are different from the world. So he says in chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, because the things that are in the world are not of the Father. 1 John 3.10 takes this even further and asserts that if you are not a child of God, you are a child of Satan, because by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The world is known for what? 2 verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And these are not from the Father. But what is? What, what is from the Father? What defines being a child of God? Well, maybe we could turn chapter 3 verse 10 backwards and say, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does practice righteousness is of God, and so is the one who loves his brother. Or chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Or chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. But don't make the mistake. John's not saying we never sin, because he also says in chapter 1, verse 8 through 9, that Christians are honest about their sin, and that Christians go to their Savior for help. As chapter 1, verses 8 through 9 say, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is, is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These verses are a high calling that Scripture is not afraid to pronounce, that true Christians are not like the world. They do not continually sin like the world does. They do not love like the world does not. They have a different identity from the world, and they are known for their godliness. You see, the world has already alienated itself from God, but the good news of the gospel is that God's love reaches into the world to make for himself a people to live as strangers and aliens in the world. You may have heard the quote from Charles Spurgeon, wondering why does the church have no influence in the world? Why is it that the church is fading from influencing the world. And he said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at the present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Well, perhaps we can learn from the early church. I was reading an account. Uh, is a short apologetic for the faith uh, written, one of the first writings we have after the New Testament, written by a saint who calls himself Methedes. He's writing to an official in the Roman emperor's household named Diognetus. And Methedes is making a case for Christ, making his case for Christianity, that it shouldn't be persecuted, that's a good thing, and all of these things. And he describes the church in this way. I think this is helpful for us. 
inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us, as Christians display to us, their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the, tame, at the same time, surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are dishonored, yet glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. How can this be? How is it that one group could be so different from the world? How is it that you and I can be so different from everything around us? Well, it's only if we are truly adopted by God with an adoption that's not like we have here on earth. We are adopted into God's family by being born anew into His. And we are welcomed into His family. And therefore, the world has nothing in us. So as you continue in faith, you should continue to grow and feel a distance between yourself and the world. As Christians, our desires and our actions and even our worldview should be different from the world. There should never be a political party that we're completely comfortable with. There should never be a candidate that we're completely comfortable with. There should never be any earthly institution that we are completely comfortable with. Because where the world says, look to your desires to guide you, we say, look to God's word. Where the world says, what you think is true, we say, God's word is true. What God has revealed is true. Where the world says, do what you want to, we say, do what honors the Lord. And so as Christians, we must ask ourselves, am I acting like the world? Am I thinking like the world? Am I hoping like the world? You see, this world is not your home, and this world is not your hope. That's our next point. This world is not your hope. You see, while we live on earth, we live as strangers to the world because our hope is different. For the world, their hope is in the world. We do not hope in the world. We do not hope in fame or in success or earthly security. We don't hope in our government. We do not hope in any earthly institution. We do not hope for a future where all of our desires will be fulfilled. We do not hope for even a happy heaven of family reunions. Instead, the Christian hope is 
to be with Christ. The Christian hope is to see Christ and to know Christ. The hope of the church is to be the bride of Christ that is made holy by His blood through relationship with the Son. Verse 2 introduced this contrast between now and what we look forward to. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Verse 3 identifies this as the hope that motivates true Christian obedience. This hope looks forward to the future and then acts. It looks forward to a future that even it has not appeared as yet what we will be. There is some uncertainty introduced with regard to the future. But then John declares what we do know about the future. We know that when he, that is when Christ appears, we will be like him. Because we'll see him just as he is. Titus 2 verse 13 speaks of it this way. That we are looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when Christ appears, he will appear in glory. And we will be made like him, as this verse says. We will see him. And by that sight, he will transform us. And so what's the mystery then? We, we, it seems like we know what the future is going to be. And I think it, it's important in Scripture where we see these things that are called mysteries or unknown. And what's unknown is not what's going to happen. It's not like a mystery novel where you're starting at the beginning and you're wondering, oh, I wonder how this is going to end. It's not a mystery because of lack of information. This is a mystery because it's something so great that even though we know all the information... We know what's going to happen. We know the hope that we have in Christ. We know that He is going to redeem our bodies. But it's unknown because our minds can't even begin to comprehend what that is like. We can't even begin to understand what it will be like to be with Christ in glory. To know true communion with God no longer affected by sin. And this hope is key to the Christian life, that we are now living between two momentous events. We have the past reality of Christ's death and resurrection that gives us life and hope for the future where he will return. And it is not an if Christ appears again, but in these verses he says, when he appears. When he appears. That's very different. It's not a hope like we think of in worldly hopes. Worldly hopes, there's uncertainty. There's, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. I hope it turns out all right. If I'm playing golf, I swing and I hope the ball lands in the fairway. Or at least not in a river or a pond or the sand or the trees. Golf's not a very fun sport if you're not good at it. And... I'm not that great. (laughs) But you see, in Christ we have a real hope. And that word for hope in verse 3 is maybe better translated as a confident expectation. 
because it's not if Christ will return, it's he will return. He will return and end our battle with sin forevermore. He will return and vindicate his people. So even though, Christian, you live as strangers and aliens even now, the Lord will come back. You will no longer be troubled by sin or saddened by death or pained by circumstances. Instead, you will know the perfect joy in the presence of the Savior. And I think the marriage analogy is helpful. That through Christ's death, the church has been bought with a price. And now looks forward to an ultimate marriage where we will be united with Him for all eternity and in perfect relationship. See, that is the Christian hope. And this hope leads to confidence that I think is best displayed in our view even of, of death. I want to read for you two different perspectives on death. And the first one is from the late atheist and critic Christopher Hitchens. And the second is from Mary Ann Patton, the wife of John Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides in the 18th century. So while he was in the last days of his life, Hitchens wrote much about his upcoming death. He had cancer, and he wrote a book that was just his meditations on death. And I want you to hear just a little bit of what he wrote. The Notorious Stage Theory of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, whereby one progresses from denial to rage, through bargaining to depression, and the eventual bliss of acceptance— has not so far had much application to my case. He's saying he hasn't moved to acceptance. In one way, I suppose, I have been in denial for some time, knowingly burning the candle at both ends and finding that it often gives a lovely light. But for precisely that reason, I can't see myself smiting my brow with shock or hear myself whining about it's all so unfair. I have been taunting the reaper into taking a free scythe in my direction and have now succumbed to something so predictable and banal that it bores me. How about that? A calloused attitude toward death. But then, there's this. Rage would be beside the point for the same reason. Instead, I am badly oppressed by the gnawing sense of waste. I had real plans for my next decade and felt I'd work hard enough to earn it. Will I really not live to see my children married, to watch the World Trade Center rise again? But I understand this sort of non-thinking for what it is, sentimentality and self-pity. To the dumb question, why me, the cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? There's no hope there whatsoever. And what's even more sad about it is that Hitchens has resigned himself to non-existence. And that's so true of the world, that there is no hope. The only hope that he finds is that it'll all be over. Is that really hope? All he's left with is a sense of waste. But compare that to Marianne Patton, who as she lie dying, After only a few months of missionary work, if anyone was said to have wasted their life, it might have been Mary Ann Patton. She was 
about 20 years old, had only been married for two years, had only been in the mission field a few months. She hadn't even learned the language well enough to communicate the gospel to these people that she was going to preach to with her husband. And she said this on her deathbed, You must not think that I regret coming here and leaving my mother. If I had the same thing to do over again, I would do it with far more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. Oh no, I do not regret leaving home and friends, though at the time I felt it keenly. And then leaning into her husband, she said, Not lost, only gone before, to be forever with the Lord. See, that is how the Christian is free to hope. To have expectation that there is life after death. Have expectation that not lost, only gone before, to be forever with the Lord. This is true Christian hope that looks forward to being with the Lord and knows with confidence that he has died for our sins. And finally, all Christians purify themselves. So this text is laid out for us that the Father's love brings Christians into relationship with us. We no longer identify with the world. We are children of God. And our hope is no longer vain hope, but it's true confidence in Christ's return. And then verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. One day we will be made like Christ. We will be made pure. So right now, like a bride awaiting her wedding day, we must pursue purity. These words may make us uncomfortable because we don't like being told to do things, I think is one part of that. But it's all over Scripture that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or 1 Timothy 5.22, Keep yourself free from sin. Or James 4.8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Yet we sing. And how can we sing? No separation from the world. No work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. So how can we say that I both don't cleanse my hands and do? How can both of these be true? Well, as always, we need to keep on reading. We need to keep leaning into God's Word Because we cannot purify ourselves by our works. There is nothing we can do that can make us righteous. Instead, we look ahead to the hope of the future where Christ will purify us. And we are purified by the Spirit working in us and through us. So as Paul says, we are able to put off and lay aside the old self with its evil practices and put on Christ. And just as in the last days we'll be made like Christ by worshiping Him, by seeing Him just as He is. And so this text says to purify ourselves not because we have any ability to purify ourselves, but because we purify ourselves by loving the God who is pure, 
We no longer love out of duty, but we pursue the Lord out of love. We no longer act as a bad husband who gives his wife gifts out of a sense of obligation or duty, but we act as a good husband who knows the task ahead, knows the busyness of his day, and makes it his plan and his purpose to give gifts because he loves his wife. I think my wife described this process well in the other morning when she was speaking to some of the women. The heart that pursues purity, that pursues true Christian purity from the world, Praise this, Lord, I'm not this, but you can make me this, and I want to be this for your glory. The heart that purifies itself goes to the Lord and confesses, I have sinned in this way, and I know you are faithful and righteous to forgive me of these sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The adopted child goes to their father, and trust him to make them right and make them pure like the Son through the Spirit. See, through the beautiful marriage of Christ and the church, we are brought into God's family. And we look forward to the day when all the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. And he will make us without spot of sin or stain will be as white as snow. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work this in us today. That you would make First Baptist Church of Newton a beacon of your love. Love that declares both what is sin and how to be saved. And Lord, I pray that we would be marked by a real delight and a real sight of your love. That you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And to you be the glory. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.